as we prepare our hearts to read God's holy and errant word to us this day, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, help us now to turn our hearts and our attention to you and hear what you will speak through the power of your Holy Spirit, for you speak peace to your people through Christ. Help us, Lord, to not only hear your word, but to rightly apply it to our lives, that we might live to your glory, that we might live as your holy people, that we might live righteous lives before you. For we pray this through Christ. Amen. We remain on the seventh commandment. And so let us begin by reading together the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. I invite you to open your Bible or your pulpit Bible and read along aloud with me. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Our second reading of Scripture comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now to him who has, who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I sought to establish a positive biblical view of human sexuality, rooting it firmly within the context of the covenant of marriage and giving you three purposes for sexual intimacy within this context. I can boil these three purposes down to just three words. Sex is for procreation, relation, and recreation. It is procreational, relational, and recreational. Human sexuality reserved strictly for the covenant of marriage is the means by which the human race is propagated. And children are raised in loving and nurturing homes. It's a means by which marriages are bonded together, serving to establish the one flesh union and enrich a couple's relationship through the repeated knowing of each other as persons who belong to each other exclusively and without reserve. And it is a means of enjoyment by which a husband and wife delight themselves in one another, pointing them to our greatest pleasure, which is found in our union with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sex, therefore, is a God-given gift to us, created for us, and for our good within the context of the covenant of marriage. And by placing boundaries around our sexuality, the seventh commandment protects the sacredness of sex and the sacredness of marriage as created by God according to his good design. And as we recognize what the seventh commandment is protecting, we must also recognize that it is not simply adultery that is forbidden right? We've learned by now through our study of the Ten Commandments that there is something that is referred to by some as the rule of categories. And you might not know it by that phrase, but you know the concept. The rule of categories is this, that each commandment addresses a particular sin, but it also implies that every other sin of the same kind is correspondingly forbidden. So, for instance, it is not only your parents who you are to honor under the fifth commandment, it is anyone in a God-given position of authority over you. Likewise, murder is not the only thing that is forbidden by the sixth commandment. But any form of unlawful physical violence is also forbidden. So then, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, also means you shall not commit any form of sexual immorality. We have more to think about then in the seventh commandment than just the sin of adultery. 
Therefore, the question is, what is identified as sexual immorality? What does the Bible mean when it condemns sexual immorality? And we begin with the obvious. Any sexual relations outside the covenant of marriage are sexually immoral. So it isn't just adultery, it is also premarital sexual relations, which is often referred to as fornication. But scripture also forbids sexual intimacy outside of God's design of being between one man and one woman. Therefore, scripture also forbids homosexuality and bestiality as well as polygamy. But God's word does not stop there. Jesus, as he does with the other commandments, raises the bar of the law under the new covenant. He tells us that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fill it full, meaning that in and through Christ, the law is not only kept in perfect obedience, but also the depth of the law is perfectly revealed. And so we learn in Christ that God is not simply concerned with our actions. He is also concerned with the intent of our hearts, where obedience to each commandment is really rooted. As Jesus states in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why is God so concerned with our hearts? Well, because it is the seat of our will. And since this is where our actions are rooted, it is where sin is birthed. But it is more than this. Our attitude toward God and toward others are rooted there as well. So when we lust after someone in our hearts, we are already acting by making a decision to dehumanize that individual and treat them as such. We've already reduced that person from someone who was created in the image of God and should therefore be treated with dignity to an object that can be used and discarded according to our own pleasure. God, therefore, is not simply concerned with external righteousness. And when we move to the sin of lust, another layer of the seventh commandment is uncovered. What we find here is that viewing pornographic material and self-stimulation are forbidden as well, even though they don't physically involve another. Now, as we think beyond adultery and turn to this broader and deeper understanding of the seventh commandment, I want us to do so within the context of holiness. Obviously, keeping any of the commandments is about holiness. The commandments are given in order that people might understand God's character and his will for how they are to live. And we especially, as his people, are called to live in grateful obedience in response to his grace and in a way that reflects his righteousness. God's people have been called to be holy as he is holy. As Christians, we are those who belong to Christ, who have been purchased by his precious blood, who have been delivered from the dominion of darkness, who have been freed from slavery to sin. 
And we are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enabled to live a righteous life that is glorifying to God. This is why God's word is so insistent that for those who are in Christ, it is inconsistent to continue to live in sin. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, verses 6 through 14, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourselves Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life in your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. It makes no sense then for one who is a new creation in Christ, who has become a temple of the living God to continue to live in slavery to sin. To do so is a rejection of our identity as those who have been set free in Christ. And while this applies to our obedience to all of the commandments, we need to be reminded of this in particular in the context of human sexuality. Why? Because just as the Apostle Paul recognized with the church in Thessalonica, we live in a culture that is hyper-sexualized, where sin is seen as amoral. Sex, at least consensual sex between adults, is no longer culturally understood to have a moral dimension. As one author put it, the sexual ethic tells us that our bodies are products of purposeless amoral Darwinian forces and therefore are morally neutral. According to the world, sex is nothing more than a natural act. So the predominant view has become that we need to throw off the oppressive chains of religion and stop suppressing our instinct to be sexually active with whoever and however we choose. The world speaks of sexuality as though it is a bad thing to deny ourselves our sexual desires. This is the environment we live in. This is the water we swim in, the air we breathe. We live in the midst of a sexual revolution that began many years ago and is coming to full fruition at an ever-increasing pace. And so we as Christians live in this environment that is ever tempting us, ever seducing us to compromise the holiness we are called to have as God's people. We need to be clear about our call to holiness at this point and what righteousness before the Lord looks like. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 4, do not do as the Gentiles do, living according to the passions of the flesh. Don't behave as those who do not know God. More and more, though, self 
proclaimed Christians seem to be capitulating to culture on this issue. They are buying into the lies uh, about human sexuality that are rampant in our culture. They are being hardened to biblical truth about human sexuality and their consciences are being seared as to what it looks like to live a holy life before the Lord in terms of sexuality. Dearly beloved, we need to be reminded of the instruction of Paul who tells the church in Ephesus, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the heathens do. They they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So even while living in holiness, living in obedience to the other commandments is countercultural in nature, it is to a completely different degree with the seventh commandment. Dearly beloved, I don't need to tell you that we will be berated by the world, mocked by the world for a biblical view of human sexuality. Sex is an idol in our culture. It's an idol that the culture demands everyone must bow before. And so whenever the church begins to speak biblical truth about human sexuality, we can expect to be charged with being judgmental and oppressive and stodgy. We can expect the accusation that we hold an outdated and unscientific view of human sexuality. And if we talk about maintaining sexual purity for the sake of holiness, we can expect to be called uptight and self-righteous and prudish. And even some of us might read the Westminster Larger's Catechism, that's printed on your sermon notes today, that answer about what is forbidden by the seventh commandment, and we might scoff at it. But my prayer this day is that as we, that we as Christians would commit ourselves to sexual purity, understanding that holiness in this area of our lives is about living a life consistent with our salvation, a life pleasing to God in grateful obedience to to being redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Living a life to God's glory. But I also pray, as I said two weeks ago, that we could show the world a life lived in accordance with God's good design and that this is the means by which our sexuality is really enjoyed in its fullness. For God is the creator of all things. And therefore, we're going to either use them in accordance with their created purpose or we're going to misuse them. We're either going to live in a way that maintains the sacredness of God's created order and give glory to Him or we're going to live in a way that profanes and desecrates His created order and dishonors ourselves and displeases Him. So living holy lives is about respecting the boundaries God places on His created order even as we remember that God is the God of all pleasures. But Satan doesn't want you to recognize this truth. The evil one wants you to believe, just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, that God is holding out on you. That God doesn't want you to have too much fun or fully enjoy the pleasures of his creation. Purity is presented to us by the evil one as prudishness, rather than 
the means by which to truly enjoy the goodness of God's created pleasures. We are dealing here with a father of lies. So Satan twists all the pleasures offered to us by God, taking what is holy and profaning it, but also simultaneously presenting it to us as the preferred and desirable pleasure. C.S. Lewis does a wonderful job of exposing Satan's evil work of profaning God's good pleasures in his book, The Screwtape Letters. I encourage you to read it if you haven't. In one letter, we have the senior demon, Screwtape, trying to explain to his lesser experience demon nephew, Wormwood, what he finds most appalling and disingenuous about God, that God is really out to make people happy. Even what might seem to be a rigorous and ascetic life demanded by God is ultimately for our good and our pleasure. And so Screwtape tells Wormwood, he's a hedonist at heart, referring to God. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, only like foam on a seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure, and he makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. Earlier, Screwtape has advised Wormwood, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. That is God's ground. I know that we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times and in ways and in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. And indeed, our culture has bought hook, line, and sinker into Satan's lies about human sexuality and has ended up with an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Because our culture has chased after sexual pleasure as an end in and of itself. Our culture insists that you should want to live a happy and fulfilled life. And if you're going to do this, then you have to have all the sex you want in any way that you want with as many people as you want. But just as it is with all of Satan's lies, the satisfaction and fulfillment offered are never delivered. Instead, there is only deep disappointment, regret, guilt, and pain. You might not believe this, but that truth is being recognized in our culture in a very definite and unexpected way. 
in the midst of our hypersexualized culture, in the midst of this sexual revolution, sociologists are reporting that we are in the midst of a sexual recession. The frequency with which people are reportedly having sex has decreased dramatically. Did you know that? Sex has been so cheapened by our sex-saturated culture and has become so decoupled from its created purposes that people are actually pursuing sexual, physical intimacy less and less. People are responding to the prolific availability of casual sex within the hookup culture with boredom. Unfortunately, culture can't seem to figure out what is at the root of this issue. So there are numerous explanations for what is causing this sexual recession, from the availability of digital pornography to the widespread use of antidepressants. But we know what's really going on. Satan never delivers the goods. People are placing their identities in something that only provides a temporary and fleeting pleasure. And instead of providing the fullness of what sexuality was designed to accomplish, the sexual pleasure that is being received is delivered with long-term disappointment and pain. Fortunately, however, we know that God's word has the secret to this pleasure, and it's called holiness. And holiness in our sexuality is something Scripture takes very seriously because Satan's attack on our God-given desire for intimacy and relationship are very serious. And so even as the world tries to downplay the moral gravity of human sexuality and exaggerate the benefits of sexual laxity, we must not be swayed from a biblical and holy view of sex. We must remain steadfast in our commitment to purity. We must, as Scripture commands, flee from sexual immorality. And therefore, I want to spend the next few moments this morning looking at the tools Scripture gives us to fight the temptation of sexual immorality. So first, how do we fight the temptation to sexual immorality? First and foremost, we take a hint from Paul in his letter to Thessalonica. If we are to not be as the Gentiles who do not know God, then we should be those who do know God. And knowing God is the greatest tool we have to fight temptation. But what do I mean by this? It means not only having and knowing the imperatives that God gives us in his his word, knowing God's will for how we are to live, what God says about living righteously, how God calls us to live, to be holy as he is holy, but even more, it means knowing God in a way that in him we find our strong fortress, our shelter, our rock. When we are tempted, we need to learn to turn to the Lord to find refuge from the attacks of the evil. And this means that we need to learn not just in theory, but in reality of God's love and God's mercy and his grace for us in Jesus Christ, that God would offer up his only son for us that we might be forgiven of our sins delivered from the power, their power over us, and brought into relationship with Him. We need to know these things in a way that our sin looks as it truly is, as a repulsive and vile rebellion against a God who loves us so much that He gave His only Son for us. We need to know His forgiveness in a way that creates 
in us a grateful desire to please God, that we would delight to do His will. We also need to know the pleasures of the inheritance we have in Christ Jesus, the superior pleasures we have in Christ Jesus. You want to know how to fight temptation? Place the pleasures that sex offers against the pleasures that God offers. Against the glory and goodness of God's creation, sinful pleasures will be revealed for what they truly are. Rubbish. Complete and utter garbage. Like, why would you delight yourself in the nastiest hot dog when you can have the finest steak? But it isn't just about moving toward God. It is about simultaneously moving away from sin. The world wants us to believe that we can still indulge ourselves in all of our sinful sexual desires because they come so naturally to us and that we can still be good Christians. But the Bible says differently. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 to flee sexual immorality. And in order to understand the full weight of this instruction, we must know the seriousness of this sin. In the context of sexual immorality, Jesus tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that if their eye causes them to sin, pluck it out. If their hand causes them to sin, chop it off. This is how serious sin is to be taken. Serious wounds require serious treatment. Jesus calls for decisive action to be taken. He isn't talking about band-aids here. He's talking about amputation. The message is clear. Dearly beloved, do not trade eternal soul-satisfying pleasure for temporary physical amusement. It's not worth it. The scripture tells us that Those who are unrepentantly sexually immoral do not inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, do whatever is necessary to flee from this sin. So maybe we shouldn't scoff at what the Westminster Catechism says. Regardless of how prudish it sounds to the world, it actually offers us some very simple and practical ways to flee sexual temptation. And let me mention a few. First, we flee sexual immorality by recognizing where temptation lies in avoiding it. Remove yourself from situations in which you might be tempted. This means watch the company you keep. Remain sober in mind and body. Beware of times of idleness where you will have increased temptation. Dress modestly as to not invite sin. Don't allow yourself to be in a situation where you are alone with a member of the opposite sex who is not your spouse. But this also means that we need to actively protect what enters our hearts and our minds. Remember the children's song? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Well, we need to be careful what our eyes see and our ears hear. Be careful, then, what you watch on television and at the movies and what you listen to. Again, our culture, we live in a culture that's hypersexualized, and so I understand that it is hard to escape sometimes. On the other hand, it's so easy to become calloused by it and not even seek to avoid it where we can. For instance, 
And I don't mean this to be judgmental in any way. I really don't. But I've been really confused to hear so many Christians talking about how much they love the show Game of Thrones. I've never seen the show, but I've been told that there is no little amount of graphic nudity and sex in the show. That might not be the case. But if it is, can I ask? Dearly beloved, why are we watching this show? And I understand and I confess it's really difficult to find something that is enjoyable and edifying. If a show doesn't have too much sex, it probably has too much violence or it might have both. Regardless, we need to be careful. And it isn't hard to find what a show or movie is rated and why. Being careful what we see also and especially includes the internet. Digital pornography is a well-known scourge on this country's moral fabric because let's be honest, pornography is not something that can be made or viewed without serious damage to both the viewer and the one being viewed. You can't view pornography without hurting yourself spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. Because of the nature of lust and the reality that pornography detaches sex from relationship. And pornography cannot be made without serious moral implications for all those involved, including contributing to the sex trade industry. But no longer do we have a stigma of walking into a store to purchase a pornographic magazine or video. You can all do it, you can do it all for free from the privacy of your home. Is it really free though? There is a tremendous cost. And I'm not talking financial costs, but while we're on the subject, some estimate that the porn industry is generating upwards of $97 billion a year. And just to give you some perspective, that is more than every major league sport combined. Just one one porn site online claimed to stream 75 gigabytes of data per second in 2016, totaling 87.8 billion views. That is how prolific it is in our culture. And so let's be honest about something else as well. It isn't just a secular world that's viewing pornography, is it? It has been an all-too-little-talked-about scourge within the life of the Christian church. I saw statistics as high as 68% of Christian men are regularly viewing pornographic material. That means over half of the men in this room right now are regularly viewing pornographic material. Other statistics I saw stated that conservative Protestants are doing slightly better than the rest of the world, but only slightly. And the problem is especially problematic for young men and teenagers in which 90 plus percent say that viewing pornography is not a negative thing. But it isn't just men who are viewing pornography, it's also women. Dearly beloved, this is a problem and the results are disastrous. Everything from depression to destruction of marriages, sometimes before they even begin. 
and we could do an entire workshop on this issue. So I just want to offer a few quick suggestions. For those of you who are wrestling with this temptation, there is good accountability software out there like Covenant Eyes. Put it on your computer or any of your devices. But also avoid as much as possible using internet accessible devices in private. And if you have an addiction, get help. It is, by the way, scientifically proven that viewing pornography can produce an addiction that is as strong or stronger than hard drugs. So do not try to will yourself out of it. It will not work. If you need to talk to someone about it, please, please, I beg you, come and see me or Pastor John. And parents, I cannot urge you strongly enough to protect your children. Don't allow them to have devices unsupervised and make sure any internet accessible device has adequate filters in place. It is not an invasion of privacy to monitor their activity. It is your right and your duty as parents. Finally, you can flee from sexual immorality by eagerly loving your spouse if you are married. Marriage is the God-given outlet for our sexual desires. Therefore, as a church, Father John Christosom counseled, if thou desirest to look and find pleasure, look at thine own wife and love her continually. This means that those of us who are married must understand and take seriously that we alone have something meant for our spouse that he or she is not meant to get from any other relationship. Husbands, you are supposed to be the only means your wife has for sexual intimacy. Wives, you are supposed to be the only means your husband has for sexual intimacy. Do not take this responsibility lightly. For if you are not making yourself available to your spouse, then you are placing him or her in a position to be tempted. This is one of the reasons why God's word encourages husbands and wives not to withhold sexual intimacy from one another. So let me encourage you. Give yourselves to one another joyfully and eagerly that you might keep each other from sexual temptation. But I want to say one more thing as I conclude this morning. We mustn't allow Satan to deceive us with his temptations, but we also mustn't allow Satan to condemn us for our past sins or even when we stumble. He wants nothing more than to convince us to dwell in the guilt of our sin, feeling ruined by it. And so I want to remind you that he is a liar and a thief and a murderer. Even as I plead with you to repent of your sin and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to find forgiveness and newness of life. Even as the Apostle Paul warns that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Scripture assures us that all who place their faith in Jesus Christ and trust in his salvific, sacrificial death on the cross will be saved. And God's word also assures us that anyone who truly confesses their sin to God and repents of it will be forgiven. 
Therefore, beloved, trust in Christ and rest in his goodness and respond to his grace in your lives in grateful obedience through living a holy life to the praise of his glory. And to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be all praise and glory now and forever. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us, we pray. For we live in the midst of a crooked and dark generation. Lord, deliver us from temptation. Help us by your Spirit to live as your people, holy as you are holy. Let us live righteous lives before the world that they might see and know where pleasures are truly found. And that is in Jesus Christ who sits at your right hand in whom we are placed by the power of your spirit. So we give you all thanks and praise for that as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.